cup of tea tales, play, silly things we did as children and as adults. This is my story, but it may be that some of you have done similar things when you were young. All this may come as a complete surprise and say a lot about me. I suppose I'll discover the truth when people comment later. My mother always said that all I ever needed was a cardboard box and then I would entertain myself for hours. I believe that I've always been a creative soul and I can easily get lost in my imagination. I remember coming out of the Lyric Cinema after watching The Vikings, a 1958 film starring Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis, and I was lost. My imaginary sword in my hand, I was enjoying wild swashbuckling action in the street as we walked back to the car with my older brother. It was wonderful for me, but probably a bit amusing or alarming for anyone else who was about. I would like to say that all children can get lost in their imaginations, but maybe I can only speak for myself. Clearly many do, though, and watching children play creatively was one of the joys of a teaching career. In the late 1950s, there were fewer distractions. Parents couldn't just sit us in front of the television or iPad, but similarly they couldn't entertain us all the time, and so they left us to entertain ourselves. Having an older brother helped as he was someone to play with and we would just go out and play with other children in the street. There appears to have been much less anxiety and pressure on parents to supervise children every waking and sleeping moment. The fear of strange men was occasionally mentioned but I don't think it was really a major worry. From about the age of four or five I was allowed to go out to play with my brother or friends as long as we were back at meal times or at set times. We didn't have watches, so it must have been the natural cycle of hunger or darkness that guided us. As we got older, we could venture further, and the fairy woods, Gipton Woods, Soldiers Field, Gledhow Valley and Roundy Park became our playgrounds. This was aided and abetted by having bicycles, and once I got one with gears, getting around became much easier. Imaginative play developed with toy soldiers, dinky and matchbox cars and it didn't take much for you to live out adventures with car chases, crashes, battles and cowboy and Indian wars. I remember at Stainbeck Preparatory School excavating tunnels into the rockery. Paul Banks and I even built and fitted little miniature pit props to support the roof of the tunnels. We loved it and the odd tunnel collapse just added to the excitement. I do remember one teacher, clearly not Miss Blackmore, as she was too nice, telling us off and to fill the holes in. I think we just changed location a bit and that seemed to solve the problem. The girls didn't take part in such activities and they seemed to spend their time when the weather was good, playing hopscotch, skipping, doing handstands and high jumping over skipping ropes. Living in Australia for the last 29 years, I don't think I've ever had a bath, as the shower is quicker and more practical. When it is hot here, we often shower three times or so a day. But bath time in Leeds was a very different matter. I'd forgotten about the rigmarole of having a bath until I returned to visit my mother in Leeds. When I was a child, it took quite a time to have sufficient hot water, fill the bath and then have the bath. 
When I was little, I would play with toy boats as I sat there supposedly getting washed. For some reason, boys would avoid washing and bathing, but once finally forced, would stay in for a long time. Again, it was another avenue to explore my imagination. Ships were sunk, toy soldiers forced to walk the plank, and submarines sailed around me in the soapy water. At one point, I got a goggle and snorkel, and I was small enough to lie face down in the bath and breathe and see under the water. I could stay underwater for a long time, but I had to stop occasionally to top up the cooling bath water with fresh hot water. Often I ended up with the bath nearly overflowing. The funny thing was I was happy to do this in the bath, but I never liked the swimming pool and the North Sea was always far too cold. In the bath I could be Troy Tempest from the 1964 Stingray TV series and you were never in any danger of the snorkel filling with water. Discussing basic hygiene reminds me of the lengths that boys, myself included, went to to avoid various normal cleaning actions. I can't believe that girls behaved in the same way, but I do know that boys, including my four sons, would avoid cleaning teeth, washing faces and hands, particularly after going to the toilet. The ingenuity and intricate deceptions took far longer to implement than the processes that they replaced. Toothpaste would be rubbed onto the gums and the toothbrush head wetted to convince a parent that the teeth were clean. A tap would be run and a flannel dampened, but not actually be used on the face and hands. When puberty arrived it became even worse and copious amounts of deodorant would be sprayed to hide the lack of washing and in the vain hope of attracting girls. At about the same time as the snorkelling, I remember thinking that it would be a good idea to walk with a pronounced limp. I seemed to have wanted people to notice me, and I thought that by walking with a limp, passers-by would think, poor boy. Looking back, they probably did, but not for the reason that I wanted. It must have been about the same time that other things came into my head. I remember trying to work out which of the senses I could do best without. Sight, smell, touch, taste, hearing were all considered and the pros and cons thought about and eventually I realised I didn't want to do without any. I actually believed that this was the first indication that I was entering into a new developmental stage of reasoning but maybe I'm just fooling myself. On a few occasions at around this time I started considering death. This may have been triggered by the death of my granddad, or just part of the realisation that we were all mortal and that they all live happily ever after was a myth. Whatever the cause, it was a troubling realisation, and to be honest, still is. Playing is the opportunity that children have to practise the skills they will need in life, we are told, and I think this is true. But I'm not sure that I will ever need the skill of scalping cowboys or burning them at the stake. Playing cowboys and Indians was a major pastime when I was little, and it does seem a bit violent. However, I suppose groups of children playing together, occasionally falling out, cooperating, following and setting rules, were indeed practising the skills we would use during adult lives. We enjoyed great freedoms, and I don't think we abused them. We played fairly safely, all things considered. 
and these halcyon years made us resilient. We knew the dangers of climbing trees because we climbed them. You learnt your limits, pushed a bit but not too far, but if you went beyond, you suffered the consequences and didn't do it again. We took responsibility and that is something that the current children have had taken from them. If I was in trouble at school, I wouldn't have dared to tell my parents. They would have inevitably have taken the side of the teacher and I would have got into more trouble at home. If you did something, then you learnt to deal with it yourself. Today, that isn't the case, and as a school head for many years, I know that parents now will predictably take the side of the child, storm into school and verbally, and sometimes physically, attack the teacher. This is a shame, as the learning for the child has been taken from them, resilience lowered, and preparation for life lost. On a lighter note, I must say that I didn't always learn, as my many near-death experiences show, and one that illustrates this happened when I was at college in London. This was 1974, and I was in a shared house, about 25 minutes bike ride from the campus. I'd bought a second-hand bike to enable me to make the journey back and forth along the cycle path along the Great West Road. The bike was an old racer with six gears, drop handlebars and black. It wasn't anything special, but it was the best I'd ever had. I think I paid six pounds for it. The trip to college was never eventful, but the ride back late at night after drinking several pints from the students' union, Guinness was ten pence a pint, was much more so. For some reason I was becoming a cocky rider. I was developing the skill of riding without holding the handlebars. And bit by bit I got better at it. And I set myself the challenge of riding the entire way home without using my hands. Most of the route was fine, as it was a cycle path. But there were many side roads entering the Great West Road that I had to cross. Late at night it was fairly quiet and I grew in confidence but approaching the side roads I had to take particular care and my plans could be thwarted by approaching cars or cars leaving the main road. Beer-induced confidence ensured that I persevered and finally the stars aligned and I managed the entire run without once touching the handlebars, apart from the start and end. I was ecstatic and the sense of achievement great, but this came with overconfidence. Pride comes before the fall, and I was heading towards the precipice. A short time later, I was moving house and had to carry a large hold-all full of clothes to the new house. It was only a short distance, but it meant a ride up to a busy T-junction. I decided I could do it whilst riding on my bike, balancing the hold-all on the handlebars. All went well until approaching the T-junction and needing to stop. I had only one hand on the handlebars and the other was holding the bag. I squeezed the brakes to slow down and there was a jolt and the brake block shot out and the brakes failed. I was about to cross a very busy intersection at speed and had only one option and that was to fall off deliberately. This worked and possibly saved my life but I paid the price with major embarrassment and severe grazing all along my leg and arm. My jeans were ripped and I felt a complete fool. The bike was okay though and just needed minor repairs and the brake fixing. 
but our days together were to be short-lived. A friend, Patrick, borrowed it and went into Hounslow. He chained it up on the rack outside the tube station, but when he returned, the chain had been cut and was lying on the ground, and the bike was missing. This was the end of my cycling, and probably was for the best. Thank you.